0: Dear, dear listener. Hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, A Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcast it's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you. Welcome back to part two of our conversation with police chief, Ryan Johansson, and Lieutenant Chris Ory. Stay with us as we continue to evolve this conversation with the wisdom of the Buddha and the wisdom of the integral map to redefine the calling of being a police officer in today's world. Welcome to Deep Transformation, self, society, spirit the zeitgeist that we were going through now in the last few years where the, the police are being scapegoated, right, for obviously some really super bad criminal things happen, you know, and we saw it. But that's the exception. You know, I, I think it's a very strange time, you know, in and, and conservative politics. Now they attack the FBI, they attack the DOJ, the law enforcement becomes the bad guys. And it's like this through the looking glass period politically things have changed so so rapidly yeah how do you how do you particularly surf that wave and are the officers on the street aware of things changing right now as far as as far as how they're viewed in general
1: oh yeah absolutely okay yeah i mean i talk to peers all the time who are still in the profession and there's general universal agreement that it's a really tough time to be a cop you know, when I started as a cop, there was much more reverence and appreciation exactly. and kids who wanted to grow up to be police officers. And, uh, you know, that has definitely been flipped around. And And Ryan and I talk about the pendulum swings all the time. And I think that pendulum will probably come back. And, you know, it it's a really good time. You know, a lot came out of what happened with George Floyd. And, you know, it was a tragedy, but a a lot of things have come out of that. And like his daughter said, you know, my daddy's a hero because it has brought all of this awakening. And that happened in the 40s. There was a a very little known case in 1946 of an army sergeant, Isaac Woodard, who had returned from fighting fascism and racism uh, in Europe and came back to the kind of racism that they couldn't even imagine in Europe. And Isaac Woodard was taking a bus back to his hometown. He went up and asked, he was in uniform, had just been discharged, went up and asked the driver to uh, pull over at the next town so he could use the restroom. The driver told him to get back in the back of the bus, called him the N-word, called him boy. And he stood up for himself because he had just come back from serving his country at war. And he said, I'm a man just like you. The bus driver called ahead to the police department in Batesville, South Carolina, And the police, led by the police chief, drug him off the bus, beat him senselessly to the point of blinding him because they beat him with their batons in the face. He was blinded. And, you know, this case could have been one of thousands of lynching type cases that were occurring in those times. Yet it got the attention of the NAACP, of Orson Welles, who had a nightly radio show. And you know, and and it eventually got the attention of President Truman, who his family had been Confederates and owned slaves, and he was known to be racist. But there was something that just kind of shocked the conscience of people at that time that somebody returning for war would be treated that way. And it and it there's a lot to the story, but it eventually led to a judge being so awakened by what had happened that he was a key, a white judge, a key uh, factor in the eventual uh, Brown versus Board of Education ruling, you know, that brought equality to schools, racial equality. And that was a a clarion call of the 1940s. But then what happened to it? You know, and and here we are with George Floyd. And what is going to happen to this era? You know, are we just going to let it go where people don't know about it? I mean, one of my hypotheses is that if police officers understood that history, You know, what police officers did in the 40s and 50s and 60s and 90s and currently, not all, of course, because I agree 100%. I also love cops. Cops are amazing, exceptional people. Yet, if we ignore what these communities have suffered at the hands of police officers, then we're just wasting you know, all of that suffering, I, you know, Ryan talks about, you know, turning that suffering and trauma into something good. Well, we need to do that with history. You know, can you imagine if police officers knew all of that kind of history, like what happened to Isaac Woodard, and then faced people talking about Black Lives Matter, what a difference there would be? I mean, and, that, and that's just the per- perspective taking that we can turn things around. So what are we going to create? Where are we going to let the pendulum go in the George Floyd era policing? You know, what we have to do is figure out that to how to take care of the community and how to take care of the cops. I, I, I'm definitely preaching and going off on a tangent, but there's so much passion for the potential of this era and what we can do for police, for police officers and for the community.
0: Brilliant. I have this question I've been saving for you guys. So say I'm, I'm God in some sense. I am, but not in the sense in the narcissistic sense. So are you, if you could just for one year, have your way, you don't have to fix the whole world, but just to your chosen profession, your comrades, police officers, how would you, what changes would you institute and how would you make things better for, or the current officers and the generations that are coming
1: up. I would have them go work for Ryan Johansson in San Bruno. (laughs)
0: Hey, I hear you sister. I'm I'm (laughs) on board.
2: No, what's going on here in San Bruno. I mean, the people who work here are exceptional, even just that they're willing to entertain and consider the things that I've suggested over the last, you know, five years, it's, it's a perfect storm of people who are open-minded to doing things differently. If I were to answer your question, John, and this is the wild hypothesis, right? Is if, if my operating hypothesis is that by taking better care of cops, they'll take better care of the community, then that's what I would change. I would focus leadership, policy, legislation on legitimately taking better care of cops. And what I would mean by that is creating... The healthy coping mechanisms to address the regular challenges of this job so that they can be at their absolute best as often as is humanly possible and i think that that's where the focus would need to be put you know, to chris's point this pendulum swing is in my view never it's never good it just all it does is swing from one extreme to the other and i'm watching it happen right now as a police leader in california right the pendulum swing of legislation after George Floyd went all the way to one side where we're talking about defunding cops and taking powers away from cops and should they have equipment that we think is military equipment and we're undoing years and years and years of learning in many respects that cops don't agree with. But then what happens, right? Crime starts to spike and many police executives, leaders are seeing that very opportunistically that well now communities are afraid. They're afraid of crooks again. They're afraid of crime again. They're Now they need us again. So we let the pendulum swing all the way back up here. And we, we use that fear to try to get back where we were before the reform calls. And, and therein lies the error. Someone leadership has got to be there to grab that pendulum and stop it from swinging so far back up and say, hey, being over here is probably bad. It's a big part of why crime's gotten out of control and people are feeling unsafe in their communities. But swinging it back up to like stop and frisk era is not the way to solve that problem. The middle way is probably the right way. So can we actually learn from these experiences and figure out where we need to be? I do see that happening, but you know, as a police, a police officer at the tail end of, of my career and trying to have the greatest impact I can before I walk out so I can hang my hat on something that feels like it mattered, uh, it's not moving fast enough. Plain and simple, it's just
0: not moving fast enough.
3: Yeah.
0: So there's not a new synthesis that's Arising out of, I mean, you know, it's like an an integral. We know that nobody's dumb enough to be completely wrong, right, all the time. And yeah, there's both of these things, but not finding common ground, but finding the higher ground. And this is seems to be the real challenge, and a way that can actually unite people of both, you know, extremes, you you will, and come up with something that's more functional, more hope giving, more real, more caring. And, and effective. Hmm.
2: Yeah, and that embraces the complexity. We had a conversation earlier this week, Chris and I talking with the folks over at Integral Life about the concept of the spiral and the, the fact that none of us are really at any particular level of consciousness in all possible ways all the time, right? We're, we're vacillating back and forth and I think they were talking about the challenge that presents for policing and I suggested that it actually presents exactly the solution we need because cops sometimes as a police officer if I didn't have the capability to regress back into red I wouldn't be alive to be having this conversation today <laughs> because the nature of my job like there there were a couple moments where it was me or it was someone else that's the way it was going to be but then to operate in red when you then go out and have to help someone in mental health crisis is catastrophic for the community. And so the idea that we have the ability, maybe instead of calling it like the curse of the spiral, we have the ability through the spiral to operate at different levels. If we're aware of them, I actually think presents profound promise for policing.
1: Yeah, I agree. You know, red represents that warrior mentality. And yeah, there's a lot of conversation about, do we want warrior cops or guardian cops or peacekeeper cops? Well, Integral says we need it all. Yeah, you know, We need cops to be mm. able to drop into all of those different things, depending on the circumstance that they're presented with.
3: Yeah. What I hear is, uh, is a common theme across a variety of professions, and that is the need for flexibility and appropriateness in the moment, which is one of the definitions of practical wisdom, the capacity for responding skillfully to the situation in this moment. And, uh, there's... I mean, that's almost a definition of practical wisdom. And in, in you know my profession, and for example, psychotherapy, one of the key features of effective therapists is they're responding in this moment to what's needed and the next moment to what's needed. And it does require flexibility and requires a flexibility of, uh, and you were both referring to this earlier, a bigger self-concept rather than, just law enforcement, just this, just that. A willingness to embrace a variety of identities and to trust one that the one can call on the appropriate one in the appropriate moment, because they are really a different functions and different identities.
2: They sure are. And for police officers, they're having to jump between those Mm -hmm. so rapidly and sometimes at the extremes. I mean, you you can literally go from a call that requires nothing but the most profound compassion to have any kind of reasonable resolution straight to an active shooter incident where you have to go by yourself and run towards gunshots and engage in a gun battle with another human and think about taking their life. It, it's, it's really, really quite profound. And I love the way you said that it requires not just the ability, but the awareness the present moment awareness to recognize the need and to recognize your ability to settle in, settle into those different roles.
0: Yeah, and I, I think, uh, I'm glad, Ryan, I'm so glad you brought that up because uh, before I was thinking about this and Chris and we, we had our conversation a few weeks ago, the developmental aspect of the integral model is so important, not just to be able to go from red back to orange, to green, to, you know, to, to second tier, but to understand where you're at, as a cop, what are my I'm I'm a very traditional cop. Okay. I see things I, I go to you know Baptist church every Sunday, and that's kind of where my value system is. But not everybody on the on your street is. So learning where you're at and how this works developmentally, first of all, gives you perspective on yourself. Like, okay, I'm not, you know, this is not the only value system that has some legitimacy in the world. This is mine but learning to speak to people in the language that they are. And even as I I live most of my time in a a Southern city right now in Louisiana and very, very conservative thing. And I I talk to people basically, I say, God bless you. And thank you. And I just, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. You know, I just have adopted to a way that would sound pretty weird in san francisco right <laughs> but so learning that helps us to be or if you go into a situation that requires just you know strong leadership shut up sit down this that and the other and you get all green and sweet on oh, it's going to just fly apart in your face and they're not going to respect you and i worked with drug addicts for many years and the early days of treatment we had to be just sit down Shut up. You're the stupidest person in the room and you don't know shit about recovery. So you're going to have to just let it go and listen for a while and do what you're told. And like, okay, but but that was also based on the fact they knew I loved and cared about. them. You know, we built that in. So so you have to be able to, you know, to do this. And you as a, as, as a leader, you know, you have to be able to talk to your men, talk to your people on the street and also go appear before Congress. And I don't know whatever level it is. I mean, there's all these different hats. And I think understanding that instead of saying there's just one way to be because we are a very, very diverse country and people are getting their power and their money by exacerbating our differences instead of bringing it together. So the understanding of that and bringing that into the policing calling is a huge leap forward. And have you have you had any experience with kind of bringing that into with police officers and in, into training?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's lower right quadrant components that work against everything we're trying to achieve, right? And as you change those, you become an outlier and becomes a little bit difficult sometimes among your peer groups. As an example, look at how I'm dressed. We have to be dressed in a way that we're easily identifiable, right? But this idea that you should take all of the things that make you you and check them at the door when you walk into the police department and instead become a police officer. That's what you have to be today. There are practical ways to break down those barriers that now in California look pretty normal, that they don't look normal everywhere. You're not going to see a lot of police chiefs with Buddhist tattoos all over their arms. You're not going (laughs) to see cops with ear piercings a variety of uniforms. But the message that we've tried to deliver here, especially as new folks are coming in the door is like, I hired you because of you. And I hope you will bring you to every single aspect of this job every single day. And if that means that you're sleeve tattooed, then great. I embrace it. I love it. I'm here for you. Let, let's do that. Let's see how that works into how you do this job but it's not normal. And there are so many problems with conforming into what you think it means to be a police officer, especially early in your career, because you're going to watch something and think, oh, to be a cop, I got to do what that 35-year vet just did. I I got to show complete indifference to this person who's suffering and scream and yell at them, or just be this, this voice of authority that's commanding people do things all the time. And then it just becomes a habit and it breaks them down over time. So I think even these little changes, they are very little, I acknowledge them, but they make a big difference. In, in this county, when we started allowing tattoos and facial hair and not making all the female officers pull their hair up super tight and look you know, very much the same, it's not met with welcoming. There's this argument that to be effective in policing, we have to be very paramilitary. We have to all look the same, act the same, talk the same. And I think one of the byproducts of that is that that blue veil gets put up and we really start this us versus them thing, even in our physical appearance. And that's where the curse you you asked earlier about what do we do about the public seeing us differently? We have to accept our culpability there, right? Uh, I don't think it's right to blame a good cop for something a bad cop did. But one thing we do in policing is we give unequivocal support for our nominal in-group way too often. Like you're in our group just because you're a cop. I have news for you. If you kneel on the neck of someone and let them die, you're not a part of my in-group. And in policing, we have been reluctant to acknowledge that historically. We say, "Ah, got to defend what that guy did. He's part of us. He's a brother. He's a cop. And so I've got to stick up for him. And I think that comes in part from what we do here institutionally. We, we look the same. We talk the same. We act the same. And therefore, we can do no wrong as long as we're the same. And That's not isolated to only cops. It's just more catastrophic with police because what we do every day and the volatility of our interactions.
3: You're pointing to the us versus them mentality that – I assume, must be exacerbated by the intensity of the interactions. And, I mean, we all have that as part of our, our nature. Or unless you grow to extraordinarily mature spiritual levels, there's always going to be, a, be a, that dichotomy, us, me versus them, us versus them. But I assume it must be more so in a profession where there is such a, under such intensity, emotional intensity and danger
2: yeah I would agree with that I, I think that not even just the intensity but frequency, right it's when you're witness the same suffering with such regularity, you have to create an explanation for it and oftentimes unfortunately it's it's an us versus them way of coping
3: wow. and and one of the things you that this segues into and it actually comes back to something you alluded to before Ryan, is that we expect Understandably, we we do re- expect very high standards from police in very intense situations. And you've you've both described an extensive training, there could always be more, of course. And yet, in the heat of the moment, under the intensity of life-threatening situations or intense suffering, it's like the cerebral cortex goes out the window and you're operating on refl- on reflexes and how to maintain those kind of standards under those situations. Of, I'd love to hear you talk to that.
1: Well, it points to one, one of the things that we talk about is, is the whole right hand versus left hand again, the exterior versus interior. My agency that I retired from has over 900 policies and procedures. And how is anybody going to hold on to that many policies and procedures, especially under stress, as you pointed to, Roger? So, you know, Ryan always says exceptional people make exceptional cops. That's what we have to focus on is the interior is is how do we get our police officers to move more from a us versus them to a us as them? How do we get our police officers you know, to uh, understand that there's different ways of doing this job that are more heart centered? versus mind-centered, you know, and that's the work is is getting our officers there individually, because that ins- exceptional person who hasn't been ruined by police culture in some agencies, not all, is going to do the right thing or the wrong thing, regardless of those 900 policies and procedures, you know, so that's the path. The path is to develop our officers as people, as practitioners, you know, doing the, the integral life practice type things of uh, waking up practices and growing up practices so that they can show up. And it it doesn't seem like it's easy, but if you gave you know Ryan or an exceptional police leader a year to mold, you know, police officers into that more guardian, peacekeeping, caring model that occasionally drops into warrior versus the other way around, you know, we could change policing. It would be a police transformation.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think it's often said that to answer your question about, you know, how you react in that moment, it's often said, especially by tactical officers, that you will not rise to the occasion in the heat of the moment, you will revert to your lowest level of training. And so this work training, yes, of course, becomes very important, right? You indoctrinate the response to a threat and then you just go into autopilot mode and and you have to trust that the autopilot mode is appropriate because you ingrained it through training. But I think that that's an oversimplified explanation that removes the human condition from that decision, that even when there's a split-second decision, it's still a decision. And somewhere within the human psyche, a decision to respond gets made, and then you revert back to your lowest level of training. And that's where I think that dealing with the interior is so important. So, you know, for example, if you really internalize the idea that we hold human life to be sacrosanct, that, that what we're really here for, our purpose on this earth, is to defend and protect human life, that that's why you are here. And If that's the case, even in a critical incident, you are not, you're not going to be first. Your first response is not going to be to take another human life, right? And and I think that's very important. And yet, again, if if you're holding sacrosanct preserving human life, it means that you won't fail to act when doing so is required to preserve human life. You won't run into Evaldi, Texas. You won't run into Parkland, Florida, because as a as a well-adjusted cop who really understands your purpose and sees it as much larger even than yourself, you're gonna do what's required in that moment because you know that you not acting means lives are being lost. But conversely, it means that when you're faced with a decision where you could lawfully shoot and kill a suspect, there's a threat that you're meeting that you can lawfully do it, something in you will ask if that's completely necessary or the only way to resolve the situation before you pull the trigger. Because at the end of the day, that reverence for human life, they're, they're often, yes, you're okay to shoot that person, but there often are other alternatives at least in the immediate, that may result in something a bit different. And it's hard for cops to understand that, right? You talk about retreat, and it's even codified in law that officers are never under any obligation to retreat. And I think that that's incredibly important because as soon as you say we are under an obligation to retreat, we lose some of our ability to protect the public. But is there a point at which retreat might actually be the most appropriate action if what you value the most is human life? And I think the classic example of that is, a say, a traffic stop on a stolen vehicle where the subject emerges from the vehicle with a gun and they're ready to shoot it out with the police. Well, if me shooting that suspect means I get to go home tonight, then that's what probably needs to happen, right? I'm not obligated to sacrifice my own life and just sit there and be shot. However, the reality is that suspect is probably most interested in escape. And and the shooting is is their effort to escape the situation. So if, and that is a big capital I, if, There is a means by which I can survive the immediate altercation without taking that subject's life. And then he takes off fleeing, which is what they want to do in the first place. And we can pursue a less punctuated exchange in which to get that person into custody and protect society from them. Those are the kind of conversations we have to have as police officers. And I think if that reverence for human life is deeply ingrained, then maybe in that one split second where the decision's being made, we'll make some slightly different ones that might create greater
0: trust from the public.
3: Mm. May it be so? Yeah.
0: And you're that close to being, you know, to being a monster or a hero based on on that decision that you make. I saw a video, I'm sure you guys have seen it. It was a while back, I don't know, maybe a year, year and a half ago, where these two women are in a fight, two black women, and there's people just standing around watching, and a cop shows up, and this woman pulls out a knife and she's going after. I mean, he's a powerful woman. She's going to kill her desperately maimed this person and he immediately shoots her i mean the split second decision and i was going oh my god thank you that i never had to do that but he actually did the right thing and i, I remember a lot of people were mad it was right you know black lives matters and all this and lebron james and i have a lot of respect for wrote this scathing thing about it then he saw the video and he says, well i guess i better keep my mouth shut until i know what's going on you know and it was the absolute right decision, but that was just an example of, of of saving life and making that split second decision in the moment that was that was incredible. And, and I and I I'd wish that would have more uh, you know people that talked about that more as what it's like. Mm. Heavy stuff, folks.
3: Let's see, let, let me back up and we we've talked a little bit about the the culture. We haven't actually named it as culture wars, but the intense polarization in our culture at the moment and the way we have alluded to the way that that is affecting police, both directly and indirectly. And one of the things that happens with police is clearly, and here we're going back to the narrow spectrum view of the role in law enforcement and symbols of state power, that police have very potent Rorschach tests and the people project all of us, myself, (laughs) all of us, we project onto everyone. But it seems more intensely, more dramatically onto police as symbols of many, many things. And to those projections, we bring everything from our personal traumas, our relationship to authority figures, father, past interactions, etc., etc. And it's got to be very impactful to be on the receiving end of those projections. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist. We get a lot of training in de- dealing with projection. But I'm sure the intensity of the projection of what I get is only a fraction of what you get. I'd love to hear you speak to what that, how that is.
1: Yeah, this is where I have a belief that training our police officers or teaching our police officers about the elements of integral theory could really help with that. When I retired, I knew nothing about integral theory. I knew nothing about developmental levels, you know, and, and certainly the culture wars were raging then, just as they are now. And when I started learning about integral theory and understood that my developmental level didn't jive with the developmental level of my police department, it was hugely healing. I mean, it, it was, it was like taking the blinders off and, and allowing me to understand, you know, where I fit in and why and where I didn't fit in and why. And the developmental stuff explains that really well. I mean, when when I listen to Steve McIntosh or Jeff Salzman talk about developmental things, the world just starts to make sense. And that could happen for police officers where that projection doesn't become as personal because the world is starting to make sense to them from a developmental perspective.
2: Well said. I, yeah, incredibly well said. The challenge is how to do it, right? And we've talked about that so much. How, how deep of a dive can you do to take a your typical line level police officer, which I understand is a bit counterintuitive, but your typical line level police officer coming in the door and try to teach them these concepts. But I feel like it's time that we have to do it because you're completely right. I think one of our first conversations, Chris, we talked about this idea of conveying to cops that their fundamental role is the the health of the entire spiral, right? Like that it's not for you to protect only those with whom you agree with the way they're living their lives or their developmental level. In fact, what makes your calling so noble is you protect it all. And even someone who's mm-hmm. operating at a very you know, low developmental level or level of consciousness, your duty is to defend them as well. And if that was embraced, how differently your average cop would go about their daily duties is profound.
3: Uh, beautifully said, and and said from a uh, a mature perspective, <laughs> simply to to acknowledge that our role is to to serve people at all who think very different, not only who look differently from us, but who think very differently from us and don't like us <laughs> at all. That takes that takes a lot. It takes a lot. Yeah. So deep deep out of that. The fact that that is an aspiration, um, yeah. There's a lot here. Please, I w- I just like to open it up to both of you. What what haven't what don't we know enough to ask you? <laughs> what don't I? John's been in this world. I, I haven't. I sit in the comfort of my office in a psychotherapy chair. What what else should we be talking about, Chris?
1: Well I definitely want to take the opportunity, you know, for any police officer or community member who works with the police to consider integral theory as an approach that could really assist in transforming policing in a really good way. And Integral Life has been wonderful to both me and Ryan as far as educating us. And anybody who's interested to go to IntegralLife.com and do the introductory course. And there's especially, we were talking about developmental levels, and Corey DeVos put together this amazing cinematic experience of the developmental levels through movies. I mean, it's just fun, easy watching. And if there's anybody out there interested in this kind of work, please reach out to us uh, through Integral Life. Uh, Ryan and I are both working with the Institute of Applied Meta Theory on the Integrative Policing Transformation Initiative, and we we need more people. You know, we want to make this not just Chris and Ryan thinking about how to imply integral to policing. We want to broaden that group to get as many perspectives as possible because we both believe in our heart of hearts that bringing integral to policing w- would be just really significant and huge for not just the community, which is critically important, that's why we're here, but also for the experience of the individual officer. I just think so many times about how different my career would have been, you know, if I'd had this tool, this this understanding of self and others. So I I just wanted to take the moment before we run out of time to make sure that that call is put out there and just reach out to me or Ryan and, and, you know, let's have a conversation and and share thoughts on it.
2: Yeah, I would just add to that that It's so wonderful. I'm so grateful to you guys for inviting us to do this because the more that we're able to talk about this, the more likely it is to gain some traction. And if you had asked me to come on and talk about this stuff even a year and a half, two years ago, I, I probably would have very respectfully and regrettably declined because we're trying to do things that were completely unproven. And so I would just speak to other maybe police executives, officers, aspiring leaders that are curious about how things might be different. To, to reach out because we're no longer in that experimental phase. Uh, I think here in San Bruno, which is, it's a microcosm, I get it. And we're, we're a relatively small department. We're not, you know, LAPD, we're scaling this might be difficult, but if you look globally at what law enforcement's experiencing, right? Catastrophic recruitment retention crisis i mean on a level that we have never experienced before we are very close to not only many departments not being able to provide safety because they can't put the minimum number of cops on the street needed but we are destroying existing police officers because of that to try to bridge the gap you have cops in many departments that are working 60 70 80 hours a week mandatory in for overtime not getting their days off not able to get adequate sleep, neglecting their diet and nutrition, and that's going to push the cops we do have out of the career, it's going to make them not as effective, and it's really deterring new officers from coming into the career. In San Bruno, we are fully staffed. I think we're one of maybe two or three departments in the entire state of California that can say that right now. We had an independent group come in following George Floyd, an activist group out of Oakland to conduct a thorough assessment of the police department, its practices, whether or not there was uh, bias that needed to be addressed, the level of satisfaction of officers here, and the, the surveys were, were through the roof. I can confidently say that morale here, despite arguably one of the most difficult times in history to be a police officer, our morale is the highest it's been in the 20 years that I've worked here. Um, we don't have the recruitment retention problems. The officers are happy, they're healthy, they love their jobs, they understand their purpose, their families support what we're doing here. It works. So if you really think that there might be a better way, I I truly believe that this more integral approach in leadership is the holy grail answer to almost all of the wicked problems that policing is facing. And, And so I really would applaud those who are maybe a little bit more willing to think outside the box and do things differently. I'll couch that and caveat it with saying that there are lower right quadrant issues that make it very difficult for a police leader, at least here in California, to do these things. The average tenure of a police chief in California right now is less than three years. There's not a whole lot of change you can make in a three-year period, especially if you're coming in as an outsider into a new agency. And so that construct creates problems and self-preservation creates problems. This is all very different. But for those who are maybe a little more bold and you want to do things differently and be part of the future solution, I just would encourage you, as Chris said, check out Integral Life. Integral Life please reach out. I think that there's strength in numbers and we can kind of start to drive things a bit differently. I'm happy to share anything and everything we've done here from a practical perspective to get us where we're at and acknowledge that we are far from perfect. We could have an extremely ugly incident tomorrow, just like other any other agency could. But I think we're in a much better place than many agencies. And it's all about looking at things. It's it's about focusing on the left side, exactly what Chris alluded to.
3: And both of you are clearly inspired by this by the mission you've taken on. How do you how, how do you uh, nurture yourselves in this process? I mean, this, you know, you've talked about providing support for the support for the officers, people on the street, et cetera, et cetera? What do you both do for yourselves? Go ahead, Chris. Yeah,
1: I I wish I could say I was a strong meditator. It's always eluded me, but I do work with (laughs) A Course in Miracles and the daily workbook lessons every day. I like to start my day um, being very grounded in what's possible for me when I come from love versus coming from fear or anger or hatred. Um, And when I can start my day with that and be grounded in that. And then, you know, I certainly have different practices for mind, body, spirit, um and, you know, working out and those kind of things. But uh, Course of Miracles has been my mainstay. It keeps me attached and detached. if that makes any sense at all, that I can really care deeply, yet remove myself from the results and and release it up to, to my higher power. Yeah I could go on and on about very specific practices, but that's the gist of it. And the working out on duty is huge. Like, I I just commend Ryan for that, because if I didn't have the ability to exercise every day as a retired person, you know, I'd probably go insane working with this material. Chiefs out there, if that's the one thing you can do, you know, let your cops work out on duty. It's huge. It's huge.
3: And Chris, just so you know, I I lit up there because I've been doing Course in Miracles every day for 40 years.
1: (laughs) Just a funny side note. Roger is when I first heard about you, Roger Walsh and Francis Vaughn was in the Course in Miracles community. And then I took a shamanism class and, re- and read a book by Roger Walsh on shamanism. And then I came into Integral and there's this guy, Roger Walsh, who does all this work with Integral. And it took me a while to figure out it was all the same person. <laughs> so it's been quite an honor to uh, to meet with you and talk with you. And yeah, I don't want to cut you off, Ryan, from your practice, because I know it's really been important for you and your journey.
2: No, I mean, mostly the same things, right? I think one thing that I, I learned early on is that A, I have to set the example. If I'm going to be preaching all this to my folks, then it doesn't do a lot of good to have a police chief that's 150 pounds overweight and that doesn't sleep and that just grinds it out in the office all day long, showing up and telling you you should take care of yourself. So I, I prioritize those things as a form of service that I, I don't look at those things as selfish that I'm taking care of myself. I look at them as part of my leadership regimen And as a result, that's what I preached to my folks that, and that's how I got the city to agree to let these guys work out on duty. It said that you got to stop. You're seeing it the wrong way. It's not a selfish thing for the cop. It's for the community. Don't you want the cop to be physically fit and mentally in the right place and to be able to go blow off steam? And this is, this is, you got to understand this is them investing in others. It's part of their service. And that's been the most profound change. Probably the most frustrating might be the wrong word, but the area where I would have liked to have got more traction is in, in the meditation space. it's it's very near and dear to me. I survived a very ugly officer involved shooting early in my career because someone introduced me to meditation instead of going and drinking beer and, you know, burying it like it never happened. And I've tried really hard to share that here. And what I find is the people who tend to come to a longstanding contemplative practice are those who experience a trauma where now they need it. and then they show up in my office and say, chief, I'm really struggling with something and and now I'm ready. And and that's great, right? As long as we can get there. We put, I think I mentioned earlier, I put the entire department through our three and a half day mindfulness retreat intensive to introduce them to just very basic level practices, body scans and breathing and ways to sort of control what's going on in their, their own little world. And it was very well received, but not a lot of people came back and were practicing it. So that I learned from that. I got four officers here certified as mindfulness instructors so that we can continue it on an ongoing basis. And we're starting to get some more traction in that space. Because when you ask about my personal practice, that the meditation is absolutely 100% the single most important component of all of it. I understand that if my head and heart aren't right, then nothing else is going to follow, period. And so I prioritize it. I'm sure people don't appreciate it because I'll push off meetings. I'll, If it's a meditation time, that's going to happen first. And the other things can wait
0: behind it.
3: I completely understand.
0: <laughs> yeah, I just want to get this in before before we wrap this up, that one of the most important ideas that came out of the integral uprising or movement or whatever this thing is, is the idea of integral life practice, that you've got to work the body, the mind, the interiors, the trauma, and a spiritual practice, however that you connect with that. That's what I brought to my work with addiction, that the way out of addiction was through an integral life practice. And I'm also the CEO of Iowa Technologies who can create audio tracks that entrain the brain to these deeper levels. So if you're interested in that at all, you got it pro bono. I'll fly out there and show you guys how to use it before you go on duty every day. And I think it could be a huge, huge uh, help and service, because you don't have to wait for years to start feeling the difference that actually trains the brains to these lower meditative states right off the bat. So if, if you want it, you got it. John, I really hope
2: that we can continue that conversation. On the practical note, I've thought for a long time, and there's there's challenges here, but I've thought for a long time, can you imagine a world where, for example, a police officer gets in their car following a call, and prior to responding to the next call, they sit through exercises with biofeedback to determine where their HRV is sitting, and that we set a standard that, look, you're not going to the next call, emergencies notwithstanding, until you can regulate your HRV and be in the right sort of space to to go and do this. And technologies like iAwake are the only way you could ever do something like that. Because if you put it on the officer to just get their HRV where it needs to be, they might be sitting in their patrol car for four hours having no idea what to do. But if you bring in the technology that can help them to regulate and to learn how to get to that space, again, we want cops in the best place possible when they go into each exchange. Well, what are we actually doing to create that environment? Having them run from call to call to call with no uh, paying mind to what the previous call might bleed into the next call is a huge mistake. So I would really love to talk about this place can be a trial environment for any kind of outside the box stuff because these folks are super open-minded. And if we want to you know, put pen to paper and prove that these kind of things work or don't work for that matter in a controlled environment where people are pretty open to it. I would love to have those conversations.
0: Yeah. And that your officers could carry it right there. Yeah. You know, it's right there all the time. And just to get the group, you know, before you go out on a shift, take 10 or 15 minutes, put on your earbuds or headphones and just come together. There's really a field of energy that's created and it can make a huge difference.
3: Huge, massive, beautiful. Yeah you know it's been such a really such a gift to talk with you both and i just feel inspired to know that you you're, you're out, both out there you're both pushing the edge uh, creating you uh, providing an experimental lab for what can really work to serve both the police and thereby the entire community i just find that very very inspiring and beautiful and thank you both so much for what you're doing
0: yeah and i feel so much um just respect and love and honor you guys uh, who you are and what you're bringing forward. It's uh it's really extraordinary. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you both for having us here. Considering your list of guests, it's such an honor and you know, it's, it's a real win for policing and for communities to have these kind of conversations.
2: Yeah. I just you. like that. I'm very, very appreciative for the opportunity to talk to you guys and hopefully to continue the conversation because I have a lot to learn and I'm learning a ton from Chris and I think that acknowledging what she's doing right now I'm always in awe of of the dedication post career right it's one thing for me I have an immediate incentive based system to try to change things and to be involved but this is Chris's level of commitment to policing and to the belief that it can be better has extended beyond 30 years of service uh, is incredibly impressive and uh, the thesis work she's doing. And I know the dissertation, these are, these have the potential to really change the game. And so Chris, I'm insanely grateful to you as well for including me in this and for bringing me into this conversation.
3: Beautiful. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.